1: today i 'm going to talk about the rapture, the tribulation, and the second coming of Jesus. I want you to think of this scenario you 're in a boeing seven forty seven and you 're flying maybe to New York or maybe even to australia and halfway through the flight, one of the girls uh, comes out of the out of the cockpit and she has gone completely white with fear, and she says to the people, we don't have a captain, and what is more, uh, we don't have uh, an engineer. Uh, We are by ourselves. And you look around the the cabin of the 747, and an amazing thing has happened. Quite a few folks who were sitting there have, have gone. You know what has happened? The rapture has taken place. Some have been taken, some have been left. And then maybe you go to church on a Saturday morning, or a Sunday morning, and the preacher is preaching, and he's preaching strong, and the congregation is sitting there, and all of a sudden, people in the congregation, particularly some of those who have, perhaps in your opinion, been just a little controversial and contentious, all of a sudden, they're gone. But amazingly, the preacher is still preaching on at least in that church that you were attending, wouldn't be so in every church, of course. What has happened? Why, the rapture's taken place. Or maybe you're driving on the freeways of Los Angeles, and all of a sudden the cars, some cars, just go off the road and crash. And you go past some motor cars that are still running down the freeway, and the awful thing is that nobody is driving those motor cars. Nobody's there. There are people sitting in the back seat, Husbands are sitting there, wives are sitting there, kids are sitting there, but people have gone. What has happened? The rapture has taken place. The rapture is the idea that the Lord is going to come in a secret way for the saints. And the saints are going to be caught up and taken home to glory. And then will follow a time of trouble such as never was since there was a nation, which is called the Great Tribulation. And during that time, the Great Tribulation, there is going to be a Jewish remnant. And that Jewish remnant is going to go out and proclaim the good news, the gospel, to the whole wide world. And millions of people are going to be saved. During the same time, after the rapture, the Antichrist is going to come, and he's going to rule for a literal three and a half years. The Jewish people are going to rebuild the temple over there in the city of Jerusalem, and the Antichrist is going to come and he's going to sit in the temple of God and he's going to show himself that he is God. And then after the seven years, the end of the world is going to come and Jesus is going to come back with the saints and he's going to come back to destroy the wicked and to set up his kingdom on this earth. Uh, This idea received tremendous support and tremendous impetus in the book, The Late Great Planet Earth, by Hel Lindsay. It is interesting, in the first edition of that book, he taught that the rapture would occur in the year 1981, and the end would come in 1988, seven years later. How could he be so confident of this? Because the Jewish state uh, was, was formed in modern times in the year 1948. And he said, the Bible says that this generation will not pass until all these things have been fulfilled. And Hell Lindsay reasoned that a generation would be 40 years. And so if you add 40 years on to 1948, it brings you through to 1988, and then the end of the world would occur. And this was taught plainly by him in the first edition of the book, The Late Great Planet Earth. But because the rapture occurs seven years before the end of the year, you come back, of course, to 1981. And according to his theory, every person, of course, should have gone home who was saved in 1981. The idea of the rapture, and that the church is going to be delivered from the Great Tribulation, is tremendously widespread today. It has permeated every church, almost every church, and so today, 200 theological colleges in these great United States of America believe and teach in the rapture. Let me say this before I go any further today. I want it to be ever so plain. When we disagree with a person, this doesn't mean that we don't love him. I believe that in a family, husbands and wives who love each other dearly can disagree. I want to say that I don't agree with dispensationalism, but I believe that some of the most wonderful Christians in the whole wide world are dispensationalists. And so, if there are some folks who are sitting here today and you say, I don't agree with what you're saying, that's fine, you don't have to agree with everything I say. We need to love each other in spite of our differences. Because God has got his people, I believe, in every church, in every different religion. And the wonderful thing is, my friend, a lot of people are going to get into the kingdom of God who had faulty theology. If that isn't so, some of us here may be uh, feeling insecure because none of us are perfect and none of us have a perfect theological system. It is a good thing that God, when he deals with us, deals with our hearts more than he deals with our heads. And so I want to say this to you today that even though I, I may disagree with those who believe in the idea of dispensationalism, I want you to know that I love them because God loves them because some of the finest Christians in the world believe in those ideas. I want you to come now to a text that we're going to read together in 1 Thessalonians chapter 4 as we answer the question, is the idea of the secret rapture truly biblical. That is the question. Because whenever we have any idea that pertains to the salvation of men and women, we need to go to the Holy Scriptures. And I should not say, I believe this because I was taught it. I believe it because uh, I was brought up in a church and the church believes this. I should say, what does the Holy Bible say? And by the grace of God, I should bring all of my theology and all of my teachings, not to the creeds of the church, but to the teachings of the Bible. Can you say amen to that, dear folks? Mm, That's good. Now, 1 Thessalonians chapter 4 and verse 15 to 17 is the proof text of those wonderful Christians who believe in the secret rapture. 1 Thessalonians chapter 4 and verse 15 and onwards. This is the main support text for the secret rapture, that Jesus will come in secret. And if you don't have a Bible, if you want to get a Bible, there are Bibles in the pews in the front of you. And I'd like you to look up the text, please. Now Paul says, For this we say to you, by the word of the Lord, that we who are alive and remain until the coming of the Lord will by no means precede those who are asleep. Now here is the text. For the Lord himself will descend, say it with me dear folks, it's a great, great, wonderful text. For the Lord himself will descend from heaven with a shout, with the voice of an archangel, and with the trumpet of God, and the dead in Christ will rise first. Now verse 17 says, now read this with me too please. Then we who are alive and remain shall be caught up together with them in the clouds, To meet the Lord in the air. And thus we shall always be with the Lord. Now, this is the text that proves that there is a rapture, because the word rapture means to, to be caught up. And the Bible says here that the saints of God are going to be caught up. And I believe in the rapture in the sense that I believe that the saints of God are going to be caught up. You you can believe this, can't you? But my friend, this text does not talk about a secret rapture. As one man said, it is the noisiest text in all the Bible. Because the Bible says, the Lord Himself comes down from heaven. And how does He come? The Bible says He comes with, with a shout, with the voice of the archangel. And the Bible tells us in another place that the trumpet will sound. And so here we have the heaving of the earth. Here we have a tremendous resurrection. Here we have the Lord himself coming, and he comes with a shout. And the Bible tells us that the the saints of God, the living saints, are raptured, and they are caught up. But I would suggest to you on the authority of Holy Scripture that this text does not talk about a secret rapture, but it talks about a literal return of Jesus, and it talks about a great cosmic event, and every person is going to know about it. Therefore, I say this with Christian courtesy to my beloved friends who believe in the secret rapture. I could not believe in the secret rapture because this text tells me that this rapture is going to be the greatest event and it is going to be the noisiest event and it is going to be the most visible event in the history of the human race. Now, I would like to believe in the idea that the saints of God are going to be raptured home from trouble. I would like to believe that. When trouble comes to me, and I'm having all sorts of problems, I would just love all of a sudden to wake up and to be in the presence of the Lord. That would suit me fine. But the question is this, does the Bible teach that the saints of God are going to be caught up and raptured home to glory from the tribulation, before the tribulation starts, does the Bible teach that the great tribulation and the time of trouble comes after the coming of Jesus and the rapture of the saints? I want you please now to come with me if you don't mind over here to uh, Matthew chapter 24. Matthew the 24th chapter, dear hearts and gentle people, and may I say something else In 1 Thessalonians chapter 4 where it talks about the rapture of the saints going home to glory, the next chapter, chapter 5, talks about the day of the Lord and it puts them together. The day of the Lord and the rapture take place at the same time, but dispensationalists teach that the day of the Lord is seven years later. But the Bible doesn't teach it. The Bible doesn't teach it. I want you to notice now Matthew 24... And verse 29 and onwards, dear people. Matthew 24 and verse 29 and onwards. And I want you please to notice the words of Jesus, if you don't mind. Matthew 24, Jesus said, Immediately before the tribulation of those days. Bless your heart. From the four winds, from one end of heaven to the other. Listen to me and answer me from the scriptures. Is the gathering of the saints, does the rapture take place before the tribulation or after the tribulation? My friend, I find it very hard to to understand how any person could misread these texts. Jesus said after the tribulation of those days, and then he goes on and he talks about the cosmic signs, and then Jesus said, after this has happened, the saints of God are going to be caught up and they're going to be taken home to glory. I believe that in Holy Scripture, listen very carefully, I believe that in Holy Scripture there is not one iota of evidence to teach that the church of God in the last days is going to escape the great tribulation. Nowhere do I read in Holy Scripture where God has delivered His people and His church from trouble. God's church has always gone through a time of trouble, but the good news is this. The good news is not that God is going to save His church from trouble, but the good news is this, that God is going to save His people and He'll be with them in trouble. That's the good thing. And as I mentioned to you today during the prayer ministry, it seems obvious to this sinner saved by grace that great blessings and great trials go together. And the church in the last days is going to have great blessings, but the church in the last days is also going to have great tribulation and great trials. I want you to notice now verses 14 and and onwards, if you don't mind, in the same chapter where Jesus talks about the last days and the signs of the times. Jesus said, this gospel, verse 14, of the kingdom will be preached in all the world as a witness to all the nations, and then the end will come. Therefore when you see the abomination of desolation spoken of by Daniel the prophet standing in the holy place, whoever reads, let him understand, that's the Antichrist, he stirred up because of the preaching of the gospel. I want to tell you folks something. If preaching does not stir up the devil, it is because the gospel isn't being preached. We were studying today that all those who live godly in Christ Jesus will suffer persecution. I want to tell you today, if our preaching, and the preaching of the everlasting gospel, if that doesn't stir up the devil, it's because we're not preaching the true gospel, you see. But the Bible tells me, when the gospel of the kingdom goes to the world in the last days, then the antichrist is aroused. And when we get opposition to the preaching of the gospel, it ought to give us courage to know that we're doing what God wants us to do, my friend. Please notice this in Matthew 24 and verse 14 we read about the gospel. Verse 15 we read about the antichrist. And verse uh, 20 says, Pray that your fight may not be in the winter or on the Sabbath day, because the Sabbath day will still remain. And then the next verse says, For then there'll be, say it with me, Say it again. There'll be great tribulation such as has not uh, been, since the beginning of the world until this time no nor ever shall be. And unless those days were shortened no flesh will be saved, but for the elect's sake those days will be shortened. Listen to me church, listen to me my friend. The Bible says there is going to come a tremendous time of trouble and the Bible says if God did not shorten those days the elect would not even survive it. And I want you to know today the elect is composed of all those who have true faith in Jesus. And so the elect are going to be there during the time of trouble. I do not believe in this anemic gospel that teaches that the people of God are going to be spirited away before the great time of trouble. The Bible tells me that the saints of God are going to go through the time of trouble and the darkness of the time of trouble is going to make their triumph even more glorious. That's what the Bible teaches. Now read on a little further. Verse 23: then if anyone says to you, Look, here is the Christ, or there, do not believe it. This is talking about the false Christs. For false Christs and false prophets will arise and show great signs and wonders, so as to deceive if possible, Even the elect, the elect will not be home in glory during the time of trouble. No. See, I've told you all this before. Therefore, if they say to you, Look, he's in the desert, do not go out. Or look, he is in the inner rooms, do not believe it. For as the lightning comes from the east and flashes to the west, so also will the coming of the Son of Man be. For wherever the carcasses, there the eagles will be gathered together. This world will become a carcass and the angels of judgment will come against it. And then the Bible says, immediately after the tribulation of those days, the sun will be darkened. And then verse 31 says, and he will send his angels with a great sound as of a trumpet. So, it seems to me, and I try to take the Bible as it is, it seems to me, as plain as the nose on your face. That God is going to deliver His people and His people are going to be raptured home to glory but they're going to be raptured home to glory not in secret and they're going to be raptured home to glory after the great time of trouble. Listen, can I say this to my beloved friends who are dispensationalists? Why should God treat you and me differently to how he has treated the saints of God in Russia. Why, why, why should he? Why should God bless us who live in this wonderful land of the United States of America with all our prosperity, why should God treat us differently to how he's treated every other Christian in the history of the world? Why should he? What about the story of the three Hebrew worthies, you know them? Shadrach, Meshach and Abednego, they were cast into the fire. God did not stop them going into the fire. But the good news is that God came down with those men and walked with them in the fire. So I don't believe this, that God is going to take his people away from trouble. I don't believe this, but I believe that God is going to give his people grace and strength to go through the time of trouble and God is going to then take them home to glory. So, great blessings and great trials often go together. Where did this idea come from, the secret rapture? Where did dispensationalism come from? Listen to this because most of my beloved friends do not know the origin of this idea that is believed today by many wonderful Christians. The story of the secret rapture was unknown in the Christian church until uh, midway through the 19th century. It was completely unknown. It originated with, uh, you could say, six people. One person particularly in this century. Four men and two women. I'm going to tell you a little bit of their history. This happened over in England, where in the, the uh, mid-nineteenth century there was a tremendous young preacher whose name was Edward Irving, who was a very earnest Christian. He was six feet four, he was charismatic in every sense of the term, he was a dynamic preacher, and when Edward Irving was preaching in London, everybody wanted to hear him preach. He believed that preachers were generally dull fellows, and he said we need to do something in the church to revive the church, and when he preached, people came from everywhere to listen to him preach. He was an earnest uh, preacher and he was an earnest Christian, I have no doubt concerning the authenticity of his religious experience. He believed these ideas, he believed that, now I want you to listen carefully to this because you'll understand then how this idea arose. He believed that the most important thing a person could understand was the prophecy of the Bible. Now prophecy is tremendously important, my friend. I believe in Bible prophecy, but I want to tell you prophecy is only important as it points us to Christ. And this marvelous and wonderful preacher, Edward Irving, also taught that every sickness that can come to a person can be healed by the outpouring of the Holy Spirit, and so he believed that The gifts of the Spirit had been restored in the church, and I believe that is so. I believe that. I believe in healing. Uh, we, We pray for the healing of the sick in this church. I want to tell you, if I discovered today by my physician that I had a terminal disease, the very first thing I would do, I would pray to God for healing. I believe in healing. I believe in anointing the sick. But Edward Irving took it a little further. He believed that God would heal every disease and every sickness, and God tried to teach him the error of that idea. He had three daughters, and each of those daughters, three children rather, and each of those children died. He himself died at the early age of 42. He also believed in revelations. Now, I believe that God on occasions gives revelations, but I believe every revelation that God gives must be in harmony with the Bible. But He believed in extra-biblical revelations, and also He believed in the gift of of tongues. I believe in the gift of tongues too. I believe that there is a true gift of tongues, and I believe there is a counterfeit. And so I'm not putting down tongues. He believed in tongues... And he believed, basically, that there were two types of Christians. First-class Christians who spoke in tongues, and second-class Christians. He taught that there were some who had received the outpouring of the Holy Spirit in such a way that they were made to be superlative Christians. And in this, I believe he was wrong. I believe that every person who is under the blood of Jesus is a first-class Christian. I believe that every person who has been baptized and who has been born again is a first-class Christian. I do not believe in in first-class and second-class Christians, those who talk in tongues and those who don't talk in tongues. He believed that there was really a hierarchy of spiritual gifts. I could not believe this because I believe it is unbiblical. He became spiritually very interested in the revelations of a young woman from Scotland. Her name uh, was Mary Campbell, and I'll tell you more about her in a moment. Then there was another great charismatic preacher in those days, because this other man, Edward Irving, was really the father of the charismatic movement. Then there was another man, a great preacher whose name was John Darby. He was an Irish evangelical, he was an Episcopalian, and I like that. An Episcopalian is a person who belongs to the Great Church of England, and I was brought up in the bosom of the Church of England. And John Darby uh, was a great Irishman, and I like that too, and he went around Ireland preaching the gospel. And he taught the gospel with such tremendous power and conviction that the Roman Catholic prelate said, unless we silence this man, all of Ireland will be converted from Catholicism to the Church of England. He was a man of God with great power, and he joined forces in theology with Edward Irving. But then two ladies who, uh, who made a tremendous impact upon theology and America and the world come into the picture. And one is Margaret MacDonald, and the second one is Mary Campbell. Margaret MacDonald, as her name suggests, came from Scotland. And Margaret MacDonald believed that she had received the gift of the Holy Spirit, and when God gave her a vision, she was told that there was going to be a secret rapture. And the saints of God were going to be taken home to glory, and then there would come a time of trouble such as never was since there was a nation, and after the seven years the end of the world would come. And this doctrine was accepted by Irving and also by John Darby. Then there was another woman whose name was Mary Campbell. She was a true charismatic, and all of these people, I cannot stress too much, were earnest Christians. And Mary Campbell believed that she had had an incurable disease, but God had healed her miraculously. And so she believed in a God who would heal and could heal every type of sickness and every type of disease. And she also received the gift of tongues. And when she went as a missionary, she did not try to learn the language of those countries where she went because she said, God will reveal to me supernaturally those languages. Unfortunately, it didn't happen. And when she came back to Great Britain she was so disillusioned that she gave up her faith. Now another person enters the field also from Great Britain, and he is closer to our time and has made a tremendous impact upon us. His name was Schofield. Uh, He was the person who helped to write the notes, or basically wrote the notes for the Schofield Bible that has had more influence upon evangelical thought in this country than any other person. He was a drunkard, saved by grace. God reached down and touched his life and he was born again. And Scofield came to the idea that there were various dispensations in the Bible that people in the days of the Old Testament were not saved by the grace of God, but they were saved by obedience to the law of God. And he taught the idea of a secret rapture and the great tribulation. And he was reborn in our day and age in another person, Hal Lindsay. And thus from Old Britain, from Irving, these two beautiful ladies, and from Schofield and from John Darby, because of an extra-biblical revelation came the idea of the secret rapture which would be followed by the reign of the Antichrist and the coming uh, of Jesus in glory seven years later. Let me say this to those who are watching on 3ABN and to the congregation today. The most scholarly Christian magazine in the world today as far as evangelicals are concerned, and I'm an evangelical because I believe the gospel, is Christianity Today that was started by Dr. Billy Graham. On the staff of Christianity Today there are 45 contributing editors. Not one of those editors today believes in the doctrine of Schofield or the secret rapture. In recent time, as scholars have been studying the idea of the rapture, one after another have given up this idea because they say it is like the missing link. The problem is it is still missing. And they say it is not taught in the scriptures. Listen carefully. The whole idea of the rapture And dispensationalism is based on who makes up Israel. Listen carefully. You must hear this and you must understand it. It's going to bless you as you understand this. Dispensationalists, the Hell Lindseys, and other good people teach that Israel is central to Bible prophecy. If you go and talk to almost any Christian today, they will say, the return of the Jews to Palestine is the greatest sign in the world. If you turn on Trinity Broadcasting, they will say, the great sign is that the Jews are back in their own land and they got there in 1948. Now the question is this. Listen carefully. Are the Jews the chosen people of God today. Listen to my preface, to this, to my answer. I believe that a person cannot be a Christian and be anti-Semitic. Hear this? I believe that if a person is against the Jews, he's not a Christian. Jesus was a Jew. This book that I hold in my hands is a Jewish book. The Ten Commandments were given to the Jews, The great commission to go into all the world and preach the gospel was given to the Jews. The greatest theologian of the Bible is St. Paul, and he was a Jew. Therefore, let me say this, God loves the Jew. You hear this? God loves the Jew just as he loves the Gentile. So don't think anything I'm going to say now could be possibly twisted or construed as being anti-Jewish. Let me answer the question Who are the true Israel of God? I want you to come to Matthew 21 and verse 19. This is fundamental and it's very important. Matthew 21, and uh, we're going to notice verse 19, dear people. Matthew 21, as we answer the question... Who are the chosen people of God? Does God have a nation today? And are the Jews the chosen people of God? Matthew 21 verse 19, it talks about Jesus. And seeing a fig tree by the road, he came to it, and found nothing on it but leaves. It is pretentious, you see, but barren. And said to it, let no fruit grow on you ever again. Did you hear those words? Let no fruit grow on you ever again, and immediately the fig tree withered away. The Bible tells me that the fig tree represented the Jewish nation. God raised up the Jewish nation. God gave them the holy oracles of God. But the Bible tells me that when Jesus, God's own Son, came to his own people, they rejected him, and they put him on a cross. And this tree represented the Jewish nation. And Jesus said, it's going to wither and die as far as being the chosen people of God is concerned. And then Jesus said these words, let no fruit grow on it ever again. Since the Jewish nation rejected the Lord Jesus Christ in 31 AD, they have no longer been the chosen people of God. Let me make this plain. God loves them just as he loves you, my brother. God loves them just as he loves you, my sister. But God no longer has a unique nation that is his chosen people. Now this is very important because it goes completely contrary to dispensationalism. Notice Matthew 21 and verse 37 and 38. Matthew 21, verse 37 and 38. And please notice this. Then, last of all, he sent his son to them, saying, They will respect my son. But when the vine dressers saw the son, they uh, said among themselves, This is the heir. Come, let us kill him and seize his inheritance. And they caught him, cast him out of the vineyard, and they killed him. What is this talking about? What is the vineyard? It was the nation of Israel, God's chosen people. And who was the son who was cast out of the vineyard and killed? Tell me. It was Jesus. And then notice, would you please notice, verse 41, they said to him, he will destroy these wicked men miserably and lease his vineyard to other vine dressers who will render to him the fruits in their season. And then verse 43, now... Here is the death knell to the doctrine of the rapture and these ideas that say that Israel is the fulfillment of Bible prophecy. Verse 43, Therefore I say to you, listen, Jesus says, I say to you, the kingdom of God will be taken from you and given to a nation bearing the fruits of it. Jesus said, you were my chosen people, and I love you, I'll love you forever. But Jesus said, these are not my words. Jesus said, the kingdom of God is going to be taken from the Jews. Why? Because they committed nationally the unpardonable sin. When they rejected God's own Son, And Jesus said, the kingdom of God is going to be taken from you and it's going to be given to another nation bringing forth the fruits. Jesus said, the fig tree is going to wither up. May no fruit ever come on you again, he said. But then Jesus said, the kingdom of God, please listen, Jesus said, the kingdom of God is going to be taken from you. Here is a warning to you and a warning to me. Let us not become proud. Let us not say we are the remnant church and nothing can happen to us. Let us not say we've got the Bible, we've got the commandments, we've got the Sabbath, we've got the spirit of prophecy, we've got the organization, and we are safe and secure. My friend, if God took the kingdom from the chosen people, He can take it from us unless we likewise repent. Just remember that. None of us can say that because we are members of a certain church that we're going to be saved and God can do nothing about it. God rejected the Jews, He can reject you too, my friend. He can reject me if I turn from Him. The Bible says the kingdom of God will be taken from you and given to a nation. Now the question is, what is the nation? What is the nation? Is the nation these glorious United States of America? Is the nation Russia? Is the nation Australia? What is the nation Germany? Is the nation Britain? As is believed by those who believe in the idea of of British Israelitism. They believe that Britain and all the Anglo countries are now the Israel of God. What is the nation that has taken the place of Israel according to the flesh? Now you may say to me, but what you're telling me goes against what I have been taught. The problem is you may not have been taught out of the Bible. The Bible tells us that God had a people, they rejected God's Son. And the Bible says the kingdom of God is going to be taken from you and it's going to be given to another nation. I'm going to read to you about the nation. Come over here to 1 Peter chapter 2. And it actually names the nation. Would you believe it? 1 Peter chapter 2, it actually names in the Bible the new nation. 1 Peter chapter 2. So if what I'm telling you today is biblical, we should not have our eyes upon the little state of Israel. We ought to have our eyes on Jesus. That's what we ought to have our eyes on. Now, 1 Peter chapter 2 and verse, verse 9, Peter is writing to those who believe in Jesus. 1 Peter chapter 2 and verse 9, he says, But you are a chosen generation, a royal priesthood. Who is he talking to? Who is he talking to? He is talking to the church. He is talking to every person, Jew and Gentile, who has faith in Jesus. That's who he's talking to, friend. He's talking Helen to the black person, Fred, he's talking to the Filipino, he's talking Mikhail to the Russian, he's talking to the Australian, he's talking, my brother, to the American. He's talking to every person who is under the blood of Jesus. And he says, now look at it, but you are a chosen generation, a royal priesthood, a holy, say it, come on, a holy, come on, nation, that his own special people, that you may proclaim the praises of him who called you out of darkness into his marvelous light. Listen to the news. God has got an Israel. God has got a chosen people. Those people are the center of Bible prophecy. Those people are the apple of His eye. Those people are all those who are under the blood of Jesus, irrespective of the fact that they're Russians or Americans or Jews or Gentiles. That's what the Bible teaches. I want you to come now to Galatians chapter 3 verse 28 and 29. Galatians chapter 3 and verse 28, 29. There is neither Jew nor Greek, there is neither slave nor free, there is neither male nor female, for you are all one in Christ Jesus. Now look at the next verse. How could any person mistake this? It's so plain, it almost knocks you over. And if you are Christ, then you are, come on, Abraham, seed? Abraham's seed, and heirs according to the promise. The Bible tells me this, when I am in Christ, I am a Jew. I am Abraham's seed. Who, who were the seed? of Abraham. Who were the children of Abraham? Tell me. Now the Jews were, but the Bible says if you are Christ's then you are Abraham's seed. Some friends of mine went to a meeting here in Los Angeles last Saturday. Irwin told me about it. It was a scary meeting and I'll camouflage it because I don't want to bring race into this. But there were some people there of a certain race and they said And and they were quoting the Bible. The devil quotes the Bible too, you know. They were quoting the Bible and they said, Unless you belong to our nationality and unless you are our color, you are going to be lost and you're going to go to hell. And there were about 20 people there who were sitting there and they were mesmerized by that garbage. The Bible tells me if you are Christ, and that doesn't say any nationality as far as God is concerned today. It doesn't matter whether you're black or white or yellow or red. It doesn't matter what your color is. The thing that matters is, are you in Christ? That's the thing that matters. And the Bible says, if you are Christ, then you're Abraham's seed and you are the heirs according to the promise. Therefore, my friend, that bit of land over there in the Middle East. It is precious to God, the same as every other part of this world, but it is not the chosen land. It is not God's holy people anymore. God's And Bible prophecy does not talk about it. People say to me, what does Bible prophecy say about nations today? Nothing. What does Bible prophecy say about the return of the Jews to Palestine? Nothing. The Bible talks about the calling out of God's chosen nation in the last days, made up of every nation on the face of the earth. And when that happens, Jesus is going to come. You see, if you understand this, you can't be a racist, friend. Uh, Look at Galatians 4 and verse 25. How can a person miss these texts? Galatians 4, 25. For this Hagar is Mount Sinai in Arabia and corresponds to Jerusalem which now is uh, and is in bondage with her children. The Bible says there is a place and it's in bondage. And the Bible says it corresponds to legalism and it says it is literal Jerusalem. That's not the city of God. The city of God is composed of all those people who've got faith in our Lord Jesus Christ. Come now to Romans 9, 6-8 to 8, and this is the plainest one of the lot and I've kept it to last. Romans chapter 9 and verses 6 and onwards. Romans chapter 9 How does a Jew get saved today? The same way as a Gentile because as far as God is concerned today every person, listen to this, Every person who is not a believer in Jesus is a Gentile. If a Jew does not believe in Jesus, the Bible says, he's a Gentile. And if you don't believe in Jesus, and if you're not under the blood, you're a Gentile. But when you believe in Jesus, you are counted as a child of the promise. Romans 9 verses 6 to 8. But it is not that the word of God has taken no effect... For they are not all Israel who are of Israel, nor are they all children, because they are the seed of Abraham. But in Isaac your seed shall be called, that is, those who are the children of the flesh. These are not the children of God, but the children of the promise are counted as the seed." What does it say? The children of the promise are counted as the seed let me pull it together people say what about circumcision which was the sign of the literal Israel did you know the bible says this circumcision is nothing and uncircumcision is nothing that means nationality is nothing but it says faith that works by love Galatians 5 and 6 it says circumcision is nothing uncircumcision is nothing but a new creature first corinthians 7 says Circumcision is nothing, uncircumcision is nothing, but the keeping of the commandments of God is everything. Amen. So what does God want today? Does He want a person who is a literal descendant of a certain tribe, who was circumcised in the flesh? Now you know what He wants? He wants people of all nations who are under the blood, who are circumcised in their hearts, that are new creatures, working by love and keeping the commandments of God. Listen, my dearly beloved brethren whom I love, who believe in the rapture, say that the big sign is Israel. That's not the big sign. That's not a sign at all. The big sign Jesus said, this gospel of the kingdom will be preached in all the world, And then the end will come. The big sign is this, that God has got the message of the blood of Jesus that is reaching out around the world and calling people of every nation, kindred, tongue, and people into a glorious fellowship with His Son, Jesus. If I want to be ready for the rapture, do you know what I've got to do? I've got to become a Jew not a Jew of the flesh but a spiritual Jew. I've got to become a child of the promise. I've got to become a child of Abraham because those who are in Christ accounted for the seed. How can I be ready for the greatest event in the history of the world? Listen carefully and I'll pull it together. God had a nation the greatest little nation in the world, the apple of his eye. But because of pride and self-sufficiency and legalism, they rejected God's own Son, put him on a cross. So churchiness for you and for me unless it is right with Christ, unless it is covered by the blood, will be a curse. Going to church may be bad for you, unless you're under the blood of Jesus. So that's a warning to me today, that the kingdom was taken from the chosen people and given to the whole wide world, those who accepted Jesus. But it tells me something else that's very important as far as I'm concerned. It is not my relationship to an organization that counts so much as my relationship to the Son of God. Because if I am in Christ, if I'm under the blood, if I've gone to the cross, been converted, been born again, and His Spirit indwells me, irrespective of my color, I am a spiritual Jew. And I'm going to have a part in the new Jerusalem. Therefore, what is the most important thing for me and for you? To be a child of Abraham, a spiritual one. To be a born again Christian. Not just to be a church member, even though I say that's important. But the most important thing is to be in Christ.